0: that awkward three (laughs) seconds of like what do we do now well
1: let's write an angry letter to the dead
0: (laughs) we should god God damn it tell them my socialist podcast yeah you're really messing with our uh, podcasting style here (laughs) um dan i have to say this this week i've come prepared with two things because this week it specifically today it is tuesday the syphilitic brain worms of the United Kingdom seem to be just on full swing at the moment. They seem to just be burrowing in there, and uh, you know, messing with people's brains. Have you been following the news today and at all politically? Um, today being Wednesday, for people who are interested. Um, I, I, what's I don't. Why don't you tell me what you're referring to? <laughs> oh, now to I like... want to know what you're thinking. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, well, was called Lee Anderson or something. That's what I've been.
0: And I don't know what no, that no, is. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, I, w- I was talking about uh, Keir Starmer's uh, little announcement today oh, the- about how Corbyn won't be let back in the Labour Party as a candidate next election, which classic, our poor guy. But I just wanted to read some of his quotes because they're excellent. So he said, Labor was unrecognizable from 2019, and it will never go back. If you don't like that, you if you don't like the changes that we have made, I say the door is open and you can leave. Sir Keir Starmer said, I would like to point out <laughs> that he is Sir Keir Starmer. And then in a response, <laughs> this is so good, Momentum came out in a press release and said, we will not allow ourselves to be driven out of the party. The door might be open, but we're not leaving. And can I just say, Dan? Two momentum. If I can just respond to them, leave. (laughs) (laughs) You should leave. These people like hate you and they like kind of want to kill you. You should maybe just leave. I don't know how great it's going, but yeah. Yeah, or at least be get nice. a better press person that can
1: come up with a better reply
0: <laughs> Yeah, exactly, the door <laughs> might be open you might hate us and sideline us at every opportunity, but I'm not going anywhere it's like, <laughs> oh, cool really awesome, great Yeah, that's, that's the PR equivalent of I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> yeah, literally <laughs> It's also like Keir Starmer literally won politician of the year recently from the fucking spectator. It's just like, <laughs> come on. It's like, I don't know. At a certain point, it's just like a horrible, abusive relationship. It's like, leave, please. Like, I don't know. Fucking Labour Party, man. That bummed me out. I, I don't know if Corbyn said anything, but what are you going to know? Sucks.
1: Yeah, I still um feel a kind of like tr- just distress and despair. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) but no, but when I, over things I really should get over, Mm. you know, over, um, maybe not, but over the way that Keir Starmer took over and then, um, has continued to run the Labour Party and the narrative that he he has successfully spun. Well, that's not him really, is it? It's the, it's the narrative that the media wanted to have and he's just given it to them. Yeah. Um, and the narrative that he has spun is what makes me feel uncomfortable. And I should probably just get over that fact and just be like, well, no, of course, that's what's going to happen, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I too am like still for some reason, very protective of Corbin and Sanders, just because it's just like the only mainstream thing I've seen in my lifetime that's like maybe worth a damn. But it's just, it's still, it's like, I don't know, whenever anyone criticizes him, it's like, hey, I can do that. I can do that. You can't do that. You know <laughs>
1: That's what it is, isn't it? Yeah, we mm-hmm. want to be able to criticize them, but yeah.
0: still a bummer, though. I don't know. I I saw that today and it just bummed me out.
1: Just Yeah, like,
0: man, uh, what are you gonna do? When we we began the show, uh, the, like the show, the show, not this episode, by being like, can we still use the Labour Party for anything? Perhaps we can just uh, say no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just say no because they'll be uh, they'll go to like insane lengths. To uh you know, to just demolish the left. And that sucks. And Corbin's still cool. Do what do you think he would I'm just just on the spot. What's your feel if he would run independently? Or if you think he's just gonna give up and be like, fuck it. Uh
1: my expectation has been that he would be convinced to run. And I yeah, I could see him winning that seat, although yeah, I don't know what's making me make that prediction, other than the fact that his majority is what, 30,000 or something in yeah. So <laughs> Um, but Mm. yeah, but then what he, then, then I suppose you create the scenario whereby there is somebody that Kia Starmer can point to and be like, here is the opposition from the left kind of thing. Here's here's your boogeyman, be afraid of that kind (laughs) of thing. Um, but maybe that's what we, that, that would be good. Maybe if we, if we want there to be a a, um, left-wing opposition to the Labour Party in Parliament, maybe... Uh, Jeremy Corbyn isn't the person that we would like to be fulfill in that role, I suppose. But hey-ho.
0: Hey-ho, exactly. <laughs> I have no control over it whatsoever, so you know, maybe I should stop pretending like I do. Um, yeah.
1: Although I guess, sorry, just like there is, I suppose um, having a opposition to the Labour Party develop in Parliament from the left, or a popular movement for that, that galvanizes around Jeremy Corbyn um, might not be the political. This is the same point I'm about to make again, but from a different perspective. It's not just we don't want Jeremy Corbyn perhaps being the one that's um, opposing uh, the political status quo represented by the other two parties in Parliament, but also maybe we don't want the the political movement in wider society that represents that opposition to be one that's sort of that is represented by Jeremy Corbyn's kind of like, should we say, moralistic politics as opposed to yeah. I don't know what the alternative to that is. That isn't yeah. to say that moralism or humanism are things that we don't want in our left-wing opposition, but, mm. um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about that, actually, that kind of distinction between, like, scientific socialism <laughs> and, like, humanism and just being, like, a nice person. And... um yeah, you obviously need both, right? It's like, I feel like I know so many people who take the scientific, it's it's not about morals, it's science, dude. Like <laughs> as kind of Marx did, like way too far. You know, well, in, as Marx did in some circumstances, right? And um, yeah, you need some humanism because it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Otherwise, you know, you gotta be a nice person. But yeah, I mean- and We can yeah. stand
1: by the opinion that Jeremy Corbyn is a good human being.
0: Good human being, <laughs> good, yeah. Seems like a chill dude. I saw a video of him speaking at an anti-Iraq War rally where there are just like thousands upon thousands of people there, and he was like really getting fiery and like riled up. And I was like, "What could have been like <laughs> populist Jeremy Corbyn like Kingfish like All right, let's go. What are you gonna do?" The only other thing that happened, uh, speaking of uh, syphilitic British brain worms, is Nicholas Sturgeon just up and resigned. I don't really have many takes on that other than I was speaking to someone at work about it, and this person is like super chill and like a very like they're like old school labor right like they're they're like dad was like a fucking coal miner like way far north right and like they're all about you know labor party old school politics stuff like that and i mentioned it and they they were like oh wow that's crazy and they're like she just took this trans rights thing too far and i was just like oh my god i'm gonna fucking god damn it this fucking island dude what is going on i i don't know all I said, I didn't blow my top, but I was just like, well, somebody's got to like support these people. And she's doing it in the most like liberal, like borderline derogatory, but still like, at least you're getting something way possible. But like, I don't know, man. Even the like the Labour Party now too, Rosie Duffield, she was like, "I'm getting, I'm getting hassled by trans rights activists so much. I'm thinking about becoming a member of the Tory party. And it's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, what is it with like, I don't know. What is it with, like, people who are so averse to trans rights out here? It's crazy. I guess everywhere. Still, it's fucking nuts. Yeah, yeah <sighs> anyway. you've, broke,
1: you've just broken that story to me because I didn't know that oh, really? the surgeon had resigned. This is how like, behind the times, uninformed I am. <laughs> Why is anybody the news, listening the news to news takes
0: a while to get out there.
1: <laughs> filter down to this end of the country. <laughs> yeah. um, Tell the but it just su- surprised me. So, yeah, um,
0: yeah. I think they did a rough poll of like who people want to see replace her and nobody got more than like 5% and there were like 15 different people. So it's like, yeah, who's going to replace her? I don't know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know anybody else in the SNP, particularly in the Scottish parliament, although um, then I don't live in Scotland and I don't follow Scottish politics. So who knows? Maybe Mm -hmm. there are people, but if that, if that poll is to be believed then um, yeah. Unless there's, unless there's just a uh, split opinion and people know loads of SNP politicians, and uh, I don't know.
0: <laughs> Maybe Jeremy Corbyn could join the SNP. Is that legal? Could he do that? <laughs> the stars he are aligned. Stand as the Scottish Nationalist Party candidate for his LinkedIn North. Yeah. And then he just snaps his fingers and they get independence. <laughs> hmm. uh, dear, 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 dear. Um, well, Dan, that's enough current events um we're back we're back at our uh origin of capitalism bullshit um we're talking sylvia frederici we're talking caliban and the witch the first two essays which are all the world needs a jolt and the accumulation of labor and the degradation of women which is the longer one of the two um (laughs) literally yesterday i like finished reading it and then i saw somebody just say like somebody was talking about it be like Well, you know, she really uh, makes her point in the third essay, which is the best one of the book. And I was like, (laughs) 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 but regardless, regardless, (laughs) um, we yeah, I uh, this is one we wanted to read because it's a different take on the whole origin of capitalism transition uh, stuff. But it draws heavily on things that we've already read um, and kind of gels a lot with stuff that we've read. But um, before we get into it and about kind of what makes it pretty special and pretty worthwhile reading uh what do you think was it good
1: i i enjoyed it a lot yeah um i mean i'd wanted to read this book for a long time and having not really engaged with it before i think i'd always always mistaken it as being more in the vein of kind of like continental critical theory which i expected to be very obtuse and difficult to read and obscurantist (laughs) um i don't know how i'd form that opinion um (laughs) Maybe maybe because it sort of slotted into a discourse and a time. Um, I don't know. I mean, she's responding in a lot of this to like Michel Foucault and people like that. So maybe that it, it does fit into a discourse, a sort of like 90s political theory, postmodernist discourse. Although this text isn't really that at all. It's incredibly readable. Um, I enjoyed it a lot.
0: A lot of pictures it's, too, which we like.
1: A lot of pictures, <laughs> not a lot of words on a page, you know. <laughs>
0: All the books, she's in a book that yeah. yeah. <laughs> she the she we'll sums up from. her arguments at the beginning and the end. We love it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think in some ways it was. I mean, I don't know whether we would have read more if we'd have sort of thought about it a bit more, or uh, I don't know. Um, you, it certainly seems to be in the essays that we didn't read where she's really get on going to get onto her thesis about um, the relationship between the witch trials and um, primitive accumulation and sort of the degradation of the social position of women during the transition to capitalism, although we do get a lot of it in these first two essays. Um, I think although this is a book ostensibly separated into distinct essays, there is quite a big flow between them. If it was just dressed up as being one contiguous book, you... That's what it is, right? Like it's it's been edited such that it reads like a book. Um, but I think these two essays do gel together quite well and do work quite well as a standalone reading, I suppose, and they do fit in with considerations we've been making, right? They they trace this trajectory of what was the political economy and what were what were the big P politics, what were the class struggles of feudalism as they transitioned into capitalism. And it sort of like describes that process quite succinctly, but also in quite a global view. And I think you're right though It really does touch on a lot of debates that we've been uh, leaning toward. Maybe, I don't know whether you have any opinions on whether she leans toward uh, Wallastienism or Brennerism or whether it just doesn't matter. I don't Pick know. Pick a
0: side, Sylvia. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I found that the stuff on the... Um on the transitionary phase and even the development of feudalism gelled pretty well with what we've read from the kind of Brenner Wood school and also the Perry Anderson as well. Mm-hmm. She sums up um, as well as this is a good place to start before we get into kind of her central thesis about like um, the role that the degradation of like women and um, women's bodies played in primitive accumulation in this transition. We should maybe talk about how she sets the stage. So When she talks about the origin of feudalism, it is pretty much what we read in Perry Anderson. And so I was like, oh, this is cool. I like this. I understand this. So I agree with it. Um, She's talking about like, you know, slaves as there were a lot of revolts and rebellions to to kind of um, stop this from happening after the fall of the Western Roman Empire and even slightly before, right? Like um, slaves and their families were given plots of land and the kind of serfdom developed out of there of the landlords expecting a certain cut or something like that, or expecting the serfs to work on their land. Um, There was also kind of a subjugation of like free peasantry, and this kind of goes into serfdom, right? But one thing I really appreciated about her analysis of feudalism was that she was very much talking about it. She never talks about it as like a static thing, right? Like it's always in flux. And she's saying that like the engine of this flux is obviously like the class struggle, right? Between like serfs and the various people that they're paying tribute to right um and so yeah i definitely appreciated that and i found i think that it works quite well with kind of the kind of i don't know auxiliary statements thought that we've been slowly developing around this kind of like political transitions um and yeah she kind of builds up eventually to a critique of marx which i found quite compelling so yeah i don't know how did you find it compared to kind of like the brenner wood political marxism stuff
1: Yeah, I definitely um, thought it synergized really well with the Perry Anderson. Obviously, it's covering the same period of time. Um, Yeah, she does really make very concretely the point that she's not looking at this as like one steady flow of history where there's sort of like an evolutionary process, you know. Um, And as you say, she really is focusing in on the class struggle elements of the feudal mode of production and how they created circumstances that then resulted in um, this gradual transition i mean there are other important factors like the role that the black death played in this process and the sort of discovery of the americas and that kind of thing Um, but then all of those those elements are kind of read through the spectrum of class struggle and the back and forth of that process of um the process of exploitation i suppose. It does, um, when she speaks quite a lot about the um, significance of the exploitation of the Americas towards the process of um, the sort of early development of capitalism in Europe and how it was kind of like, almost like it was a a world system, you know, like there is a, there are sort of world systems theory elements to this where like, um, not only was one necessary to the other, but both sort of influence the process that was happening in both places kind of thing there was a um the the there was a mutual influence between the two on the social relations that were developing and playing out um and in that way um there's a lot of parallels with what we read in the jason moore right it's the same kind of thesis and and jason moore almost like i don't know whether he deliberately references sylvia federici but he very much like he definitely obviously he includes uh, sort of like the african slave populations taken to south america and north america and the native populations of um the americas and also european and american women as all being subjected to this process as being cast as a form of nature to be exploited by capitalism um and this book very much th- fits in with that thesis and um it's the other way around really he's taking her thesis. As you know saying, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, just this general idea of appropriation versus exploitation, right? Which, yeah, is very compelling. And I think especially when you talk about ecology, there's a reason that Moore pulls so heavily on Marxist feminist thought to make points about ecologies because, you know, unfortunately, we live in a world where like, our ecology has been exploited, or not exploited, I'm sorry, appropriated um, in various ways that are vital to the reproduction of capitalism and that mirrors itself in the way that women's bodies are used have been used since the development of capitalism and obviously since before but one thing you said made me want to read this um in regards to the kind of comparison between um not the comparison but like the relationship between the new world and the old world during the development during this kind of transitionary phase um She says it's also important to remember that the conquest provided the European ruling class with the silver and gold used to pay the mercenary armies that defeated urban and rural revolts. And that in the same years when Arawaks, Aztecs, and Inca uh, were being subjugated, workers in Europe were being driven from their homes, branded like animals and burned as (laughs) witches. So, yeah, not a good time to be a human uh, back then. And she really does a good job of, like, driving home that, just like Marx does, that this is, like the most violent era in human history, right? Like obviously we have world war one and world war two, but like continents were slaughtered, like 95% of, um, of, of natives from the, from North America were just slaughtered. Um, and so this is, you know, it's, it's when Mark says if money was born, um, you know, with a smudge of blood on one cheek, then capital was born just like dripping from head to toe in blood. It's that's exactly what she's getting at. Right. Um, and,
1: yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's lots to be said about that. What I'm inclined to do to begin with is to sort of draw that back a bit to what she, what the section that precedes that, right? Because you have this advent of capitalism where it's this sort of undeniably, um, almost historically unique brutal process that's playing out in the new world and in the old, basically at the same time. Um, but that's almost coming on the back of. A historic sort of high point in the lives of the European proletariat as it existed under feudalism. Um, sort of, you've got this process whereby the Black Death happens and then there's this massive labor shortage. And therefore, as that event is taken up by the ongoing class struggle between the sort of like feudal lords and the peasantry, um, or the sort of landless workers that exist under feudalism um as as the sort of the event of the black death unfolds you have this unprecedented growth in the sort of social power of the proletariat because their labor is in such high demand um they're able to exact um really significant uh compromises from the landlords i suppose so there's this sort of this discussion of like um uh like working days and working weeks being the lowest that they're sort of ever been um there is this there is the, the idea that peasants are being paid for every day of the year even when they're not working kind of thing um wages go up by like 100 percent in a century kind of thing um so it's in response to sort of that sort of high point that the the ruling class reaction happens uh the so what she calls like the feudal reaction which sort of like leads into uh, this sort of like really bloody period of um, capitalist development. Does that make sense? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I think
0: it makes sense.
1: Um, the other thing that seemed really significant, just going back just a little bit further, is like the um, the, de- the development of feudalism into kind of a money economy. So you have this kind of like high point of feudalism in the 11th, 12th century kind of thing. Um, and you have at the same time this sort of developing... Uh, desire within the peasantry to sort of gain liberation from this sort of like class-based system that they're cast into um, and to liberate themselves from that and to sort of like uh, gain greater freedoms and greater democratic rights and this kind of thing. And one of the features of feudalism that we've discussed in the past is this idea that there are sort of mutual rights and obligations on both sides of the class divide. And what she emphasises really well is how those rights that the proletariat had, they'd actually gotten them from the ruling class through this process of class struggle. Uh, and what they did manage to get was like formalised rights and obligations. But one of the things that came th- came forward as part of that process was also the transition of rents into something that were paid in money rather than something that was paid in labour time or something that was paid in. Uh, other kinds of commodities right and so it's sort of in that that's sort of like one of the sort of nascent earliest parts of this transition process beginning to play out because it's as soon as you get to that point that you have certain peasants not able to gain access to the money necessary to pay the taxes and then they sort of start to lose access to their land and then you sort of have the gradual development of a a landless proletarian class who are then start to work for other peasants and then you begin to get this what Robert Brenner starts to describe as this process of early capitalist caste relations between uh tenant farmers and the people that the sort of workers, the landless workers that they employ. And this sort of all the way back into feudalism, do you have all of these sort of like beginning phases of the transition, I guess?
0: Yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting too. She says at one point, she says that capitalism was not the product of an evolutionary development bringing forth economic forces that were maturing in the womb of the old order, which I think is an idea that we're, as you're saying, like an idea that we're very accustomed with. It was interesting. She says that capitalism was the response of the feudal lords, the patrician merchants, the bishops and the popes to a centuries-long social conflict that in the end shook their power and truly gave all the world a big jolt, which is interesting because it almost makes it sound like this is something that they, like, outwardly set out to do. Let's do capitalism, but that isn't quite what she's saying. I think it would be really easy to misread it like that, but, um, yeah, obviously, like, this class working as a whole. And she is interesting because she basically says at a certain point that, like, the bourgeoisie, the nascent bourgeoisie and the nobility actually worked together to um, shut down this feudal struggle, but I think we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves <laughs> because i think that the whole one the main thing that she's working towards as we said is a critique of the kind of classic idea of primitive accumulation. and so when you're talking about the black death right like she she really eloquently makes the points that you're just talking about but she also on top of that is like it wasn't just the workforce uh in general the like laboring masses that had all of this power all of a sudden in um you know, during this like crisis, quote unquote, where like the, you know, the working classes were able to get a lot more for their money, prices fall, wages go way up. She also makes a point that it actually led to a large rise in women's power to control their own bodies, right? And that this is something that the ruling classes couldn't have because this was a crisis of labor power, right? And they needed to basically have more laborers and more laborers and they couldn't have women. Um, basically being like, well, actually, perhaps I might not just do what I'm supposed to do and go out there and just pump out kids. You know, I might actually kind of want to do my own thing. Maybe I want to be a merchant. Maybe I want to join a guild, do all of these things. And so there was this reaction there um, that kind of led into, I mean, eventually the nuclear family, right? This like image of like the 1950s, like asshole, you know, mom, dad, fucking weirdo kids. And the dad goes to work doing, I don't know works at an ad agency and then like the wife stays home and like does women's work which is all unpaid right it eventually leads into that um which is the beginning of her critique of primitive accumulation which i really found very compelling and it's and she makes the point right like her whole point is that marx is very good on the origins of um How the laboring classes lost access to the means of production, how they were separated from that, and how the capitalist class was created by, you know, amassing control over the means of production and enough capital or enough money, basically, to turn into capital. And he's also surprisingly good. I was surprised on how good he is on um, colonialism as well um about you know there's this famous line about turning africa into the entire continent of africa into a commercial den for the hunting of black skins is his direct quote I think um but she makes the point that he doesn't talk anything about the actual reproduction of labor power which is to say the changes that happened in how the state specifically and also the rest of society related to this kind of subjugation and indeed you know as she says degradation of women's bodies as a necessary way to control uh, the reproduction of labor power, which is you know literally reproducing the working class,
1: and something that's so integral to a Marxist analysis of how capitalism works, right? This yeah. is most important central commodity to the whole process. Exactly. Um, to then not look to like, not that Marx does that, but like to not really. Then it's obvious that it's really, uh, it's a real imperative of for us. of <laughs> thanks to Silver Federici. <laughs> to sort of have this analysis of uh, how does this the existence of labor power as a commodity and the production of that commodity and um, capitalism develop and what are the things that are necessary to create those conditions I suppose mm. and what form of primitive accumulation is proper to the um, instituting of capitalist social relations into the reproduction of human beings because like Primitive accumulation is this really broad term. And as you say, like in a general Marxist analysis, it's usually considered to apply to raw materials and um, land, shall we say, or like gold or what have you. But there is also this aspect of primitive accumulation that relates to the reproduction of um, human labor power. I think one of the really important things that needs emphasizing in our analysis of like the relationships between um, the sexes in this book and her historical analysis of that relationship is kind of like, I mean, it's, it's obvious that she's not saying this and obvious that we're not saying this, but I guess it's worth bearing pointing out that she's not saying that like misogyny happens with the advent of capitalism. Like, okay? <laughs> yeah, everything
0: was fine before
1: that. Everything was totally fine. <laughs> um, but she is pointing out that there is a very definite structural change. Um, one that is sort of proper to capitalism and capitalist social relations. And I think she's kind of saying that things do get definitely worse, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think the central thing that she says that changes is that, like, obviously there's always been this sort of, like, gendered division of labor, even if we go back to, like, uh, hunter-gatherer societies, primitive communism, there probably still was a gendered division of labor. Um. But one of the things that happens under capitalism, she says, is that, um, that you get this division between what is considered to be real work and not real work kind of thing. And then you then you get everything that's sort of like uh, all work that relates directly to economic production, which through this historical process that she, she describes becomes associated with the work of men, is considered to be proper value-producing work. Um, and then you, ha- which, is, which is actually um, compensated in some ways. It's compensated in the form of the wage. Obviously, we know it's not fully compensated, right? Otherwise, you couldn't have capitalism, but it is compensated. But you also have this form of labor, which is totally undervalued, not compensated at all, which is obviously the reproductive labor that's primarily associated with the work and the bodies of women. Um, and it's the sort of desire to separate these two which is sort of fundamental to this sort of new shift that happens in the transition from feudalism to capitalism as it relates to the relationships between uh, men and women.
0: Yeah, and that's what she calls the patriarchy of the wage, right? Like there's this inherent, she claims, inherent... patriarchal aspect of the wage which is like oh wow yeah, that's absolutely true i mean i'd obviously like known about the wages for housework stuff and about trying to get women paid for all of this unpaid labor that they do all day women's work right she uses that phrase a lot to be like this this gendered division of labor becomes as exactly as you're saying like men do the thing that makes the money and women do everything else it's like oh well what's everything else it can't be that important it's like oh reproducing society <laughs> just that just that small thing um But to go on from what you're saying and to kind of tie it into the Jason Moore, um, this bit, she says, for for, in pre-capitalist Europe, women's subordination to men had been tempered by the fact that they had access to the commons and other communal assets. While in the new capitalist regime, women themselves became the commons as their work was defined as a natural resource laying outside of the sphere of market relations. Long-time listeners will know, Dan and I lament the loss of the commons, of course. This enclosure is, this is, you know, the fall. Well, we have many, over the show, our show's lore is there have been many falls. <laughs> Agriculture was also a fall. <laughs> but uh, this was also a fall, losing access to the commons. And the commons is like, generally when we think about the commons under feudalism, it's like that field over there, you can use it for whatever you want, graze some sheep on it. But it was also forests right people need things like wood and timber and foraging in the forest to sustain themselves obviously um, we talked quite a bit about this in fossil capital when it was like the flow dude talking about like water and wind and all these different things that capitalists couldn't monopolize on because it wasn't profitable but they were able to capitalize on things of the commons like you know fields and forests in this central class dynamic of feudalism as it says in the perry anderson like expanded to the point where there was basically like no common land left because everyone was trying to eat it all up but she makes a really interesting point where she says that the ac- access that the peasantry had to the commons basically allowed for a way for women even though there was in like you know obviously as you said misogyny didn't begin like with the enclosures or whatever but um it allowed women a certain amount of self-sustainability because they could either go and sell stuff that they get in the commons or they could have their own little bit of like i don't know, like a flock or something like that or go and like i don't know fish something like they had access to the commons and so it allowed them to sustain themselves in a way where they didn't have to rely on their husbands right um i know that we always like to think and i probably thought a lot more like this up until reading these essays that like Feudalism was just this awful time for women because men like directly owned their families and used them all, children included, as like a um, a source of unpaid labor, and they needed it if they were ever going to like survive, right? Because you know they needed to have like six kids to all work the fields because you couldn't hire anybody. But she also makes a really interesting point where she's like, while that was true. Um, while the commons existed it did allow for this kind of self-sustainability of women however partial it was and once that went away as she kind of it very heavily says like women became the commons they suddenly their bodies existed outside of the sphere of um, material production and became this the commons for reproducing workers the working class um, that's brutal
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah yeah i think one of the other things she said is about the sort of like the feudal commons, but also the structure of the uh, village community, I guess. It's that both the village and the commons, there are various spaces for which women come together and work together. Um, So not only do they provide some kind of fallback um, form of subsistence, uh, they also sort of foster the sort of like uh, communal collective environment in which women can sort of like band together, defend themselves, recognize common cause kind of thing. Um, and it, what struck me reading this book is that like, I like to, but I think people in general like to complain about like neoliberal, li, neoliberalism has destroyed community, you know, and before Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan <laughs> and the Chicago school, we had community and collectivity and like, wow. <laughs> I think maybe just have to look at the entire history of capitalism that's um, destroyed any degree of commonality for various different reasons, right? Obviously there's a desire to clamp down on those sources of resistance that might come. Obviously during feudalism, it was a real great threat to the ruling classes of Europe that uh, you had these constant sort of like peasant rebellions um, and Significant measures were taken to, to, to sort of crack down on the possibility of any degree of sort of combination of people to unite in common cause. Um, but also, as you say, like, it's, there's sort of this like economic logic that also creates the family as the economic unit kind of thing and sort of subjugates women to that economic unit. And it's sort of the men who venture out and engage in um, collective economic activity. But I think it's also worth pointing out that she doesn't actually say that then women only do housework, you know, they only do reproductive work in the home. She says that what happens is there becomes a sort of like particular type of work that women do, which is sort of like social reproductive. And then there's also all the productive work that is designated as a sort of male work, even though under feudalism, she says, um all of these particularly skilled types of labours were done by all sorts of different people. She gives some stats where it's like uh, two-thirds of all of the craft guilds in Western Europe like, accepted women members, right, because there were women working in all of these particular kind of skills. So there is this historical process that sort of, like, uh, specifies who can do what types of work. But it's still the case that the actual physical bodily work of women is sometimes done as wage labour, either by women working in sort of like other households for the ruling class for the new capitalist class for the middle class as sort of like servants and sort of wet nurses or midwives or this kind of thing but also there, there is actual economic labor that's done inside of the household by women in what we've come across before is like the putting out system right like there's a lot of like productive labor that's done by women producing commodities for sale but throughout this entire process there is this um, presumption that the woman's wage will be paid to the man and so even though women are engaged in this economic activity it's not sort of like connected to a wider economic process it's all funneled straight through the economic unit of the household and through her spouse, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Um, well, at some points they even say that like the clerk's pain people would be like, it was completely up to them to be like, eh, do I want to put this in the guy's name or in the person who actually did the work's name, the wife's name, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost impossible to know who was doing what work.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Which is poses an interesting problem for like actually studying the history because it's like, you know, wait a minute, this guy got two wages. How the hell did he do that? You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, oh, it's actually his wife working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a bit of a discussion, too, on the state as well, which I thought was interesting and like the state's role in guaranteeing class relations. She makes a point that it was kind of like the state basically began immediately right away to recognize the unsustainability of this new capitalist you know, system by basically saying there are whole groups of people who will just not be able to be provided for based on the system of just value extraction. So she's basically says that the state needed to step in as a guarantor of like in some places, you know, people's lives and in some cases women, of course. But she makes a point that this is the beginning of the state being this the arbitrator of class relations, which I thought was very interesting that we know of today, right? Um, stepping in when the bourgeoisie kind of oversteps bounds and goes, okay, all right, everybody relax and then just pumps them full of money, you know, five seconds later, once everything chills out. Um, And, but of course she isn't saying that the state is this impartial thing where it like supports people, right? Like it is supporting people and it's recognizing the unsustainability of capitalism so that capitalism can keep functioning. And so that, you know, surplus value can keep being extracted. Um, And this unpaid labor can keep going forward and, and on and on and on this, you know, the circuit, the spiral or whatever. Um, And the state just definitely throughout this, these whole two essays plays a very interesting role of, kind of being, this kind of speaks to her idea of the transition and why whenever she says transition, she puts it in quotes, right? Because she's saying that, like, to a certain extent, there were capitalist relations beginning to form while there were still, obviously, uh, non-capitalist state forms, but also just non-capitalist ways of life at all. And this is why you get, you know, masses of people wandering hungry after the enclosures, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's interesting when she says that, you know, The capitalist structure, the economic relations were beginning to be there, but the state structure certainly weren't. And so it had to do this catch up work. But you still see elements of, you know, the state today beginning back then as early as kind of the development of these social relations themselves.
1: Yeah, it's almost it seems to me almost like um, this process of subjugation of women and this particular type of misogynistic relationship Vis-a-vis men and women uh, in under capitalism, that she points, she describes. It's almost like capitalism doesn't start with that desire. What kind of happens is you have this sort of in the 1600s or the late 1500s, you have this massive increase in prices, which she says, um, sort of like bourgeois historians have usually mistaken for being a result of the discovery of the Americas and this sort of massive increase of gold and silver supplies, but. Really what she's saying is actually where that stems from is the introduction of capitalist economic relations, particularly the desire to produce for exchange rather than for um, for need, for use. And so you have this, and, and also the sort of like gradual globalization of the economy, such that capitalists and sort of that these early capitalists are now producing for exchange on the market and potentially for um export overseas and therefore you have this situation where there's these sort of huge amounts of food being created but then because the prices are going up and because there isn't enough there now isn't enough care there isn't enough work for the number of people in society that actually you have these developing sort of as you say like uh, roving bands of sort of vagabonds and sort of like starving hordes, sort of like besieging towns and uh, stately homes and raiding granaries and this kind of thing which sort of is the sort of like very early stages a very early form of um, contradiction with in capitalism right? You have uh, a desire to have labor and to have laborers be working and have labor be disciplined so that you can ex- sort of extract surplus value from it. But at the same time, there's no real desire anymore. Or there's no real requirement anymore to actually sustain uh, the life of all of the people living in the society. Um, the The desire is simply to maximize profits. And then throughout this period, I think she compares the end of the 16, 1600s as a sort of like low point well a high point for population decline analogous to the period immediately after the black death but unlike immediately after the black black death where it really benefited the surviving proletariat of europe it really doesn't benefit the now capitalist proletariat of sort of elizabethan england and the rest of um late 1700s europe because you're now living under the capitalist social relations and so Uh, One of the fixes is to then start disciplining um, women's bodies and um, sort of sexual norms and this kind of thing to then begin to start trying to ensure population growth start again. Because it is a real sort of social crisis that people just aren't having children because economically there aren't the circumstances for that to be remotely viable. Um, and also,
0: and also, just going uh, like into the end of the Middle Ages or the like late stage feudalism. We talked about this in the Perry Anderson episodes where they were just running out of land. They were running out of places. It's like, why would you have kid? Why would you have like six kids towards the end of feudalism? There, there was going to be nothing that you could give them, right? You couldn't be like, oh, we well, go have this trunk of the commons, go have this chunk of you know the woods up there or something like that it's same thing with the guilds, right? It's just like, there were just weren't enough spaces. So the laboring working masses, I don't want to call them the working class, like the laboring masses just it's like, well, why would you do that? Like there was no incentive to have kids anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. This kind of um, leads in a little bit too, to talking about her thesis thesis on like the witch hunts and about where these originated from and, she definitely yeah the next the next essay after this is the one where she really gets into it but she talks a little bit about the witch hunts here and about the demonization literal demonization of women right uh, as witches and um yeah again it's fairly brutal i think in the next essay she makes a claim that something along the lines of like hundreds of thousands of women were like actually executed all over the world for the charge of being a witch which we all kind of think is like haha like the dunking stools like the witch hunts weren't those kooky they're pretty funny but it's like actually this horrific like heinous act to discipline women's bodies she says at one point similarly in the charge that witch that witches sacrificed children to the devil a key theme in the great witch hunt of the 16th and 17th centuries we can read not only a preoccupation with population decline but also a fear of the property a fear of the property classes with regard to their subordinates, particularly low-class women who, as servants, beggars, or healers, had many opportunities to enter their employees, employer's house and do them harm. It cannot be pure coincidence, however, that at the very moment when population was declining, an ideology was forming that stressed the centrality of labor and economic life, severe penalties were introduced in the legal codes of Europe to punish women guilty of reproductive crimes. She's basically making the point that at the very moment when the burgeoning capitalist classes like needed labor power maximized at its most, women were being like, Well, you know, we've always had these practice of like practices of like you know, different forms of abortion or of just using contraception that were holdovers from feudal times. This was, they were just kind of like fairly common practices for women back then that the the ruling classes basically just had to be like, you need to cut all that stuff out because we just need more workers. And so she says that this ideology forms of witches and of, you know, oh, they're sacrificing uh, their babies to the devil. These horrible, evil witches, let's, you know, put them in cages and then throw them in <laughs> the river. It's like, oh yeah, great. That'll, that'll help. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but um, moving forward a bit, it does also talk about, this kind of gets into the heresies, but we should probably pause there just because this is like the point of her book is to say that this all culminated, uh, this like, you know, war on women's bodies, primitive accumulation as it relates to women's bodies, like culminated in this mass witch hunt, global witch hunt um, that just wreaked havoc. And now we just think it's like this kooky thing
1: yeah it's something you can very easily mistake as being a feature of like medieval society, something that's like thoroughly belongs in the dark ages and not something to be considered as in any better ways related to modern society kind of thing. But I think the crux of a thesis is no it is a modern phenomena, the witch hunt, right? It's something that's constitutive or it's central to how capitalism begins to construct itself and and you're right it's it's uh, predicated on this desire to control and ensure the reproduction of labor power and so obviously the figure of the witch becomes associated with um i suppose just generally independent women but also um there's it's obvious obviously they begin to punish all these crimes use of contraception um infanticide it's not a surprise then that the idea of the witch becomes associated with killing and sacrificing children because um one of the things they're trying to clamp down on is um anything that doesn't lead to people reproducing and raising their children in what we now come to consider to be sort of a nuclear family structure right and then also obviously there is this sort of like feudal legacy as you say of um use of uh forms of contraception that are basically predicated on or, or stem from uh use of various herbs and concoctions, which could quite easily portrayed as being potions. of various oh, I hadn't, I hadn't even
0: made that connection as well. <laughs> That's a really good point. Oh, my God.
1: So it's just this sort of like uh, process of associating women, um, but sort of demonizing or casting all of these um, features of uh, womanhood and women's autonomy that they want to subjugate and subdue and sort of casting them in this sort of demonic veil. Um, of witchcraft stemming, as you say, from the legacy of heresy, I suppose, which yeah. we should talk yeah. about, because that was a really fun bit of this book that I was really enjoying. That was
0: the bit of the book where I was like, "Well, oh, this Caliban in the witch book has really given me Warhammer 40. Oh, yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I was having the exact same thought. I was like, how can I incorporate the idea of a heretic war band into I, one? I tell you, I,
0: literally reading this, I was like, I need to build a heretical novitiates army. I need to just do that right now.
1: Uh, my, my, my so yeah, everybody knows. People don't know. People don't care that Jack and I have been playing a little bit of Warhammer Forty Thousand Kill Team. My my inclination was to go um, blooded traitor god, oh. but sort of proxying as some them as kind of like uh, a heretic warband led That's by some kind of like rebellious preacher, and then there was some kind of sense of like, are they loyal or are they worshippers of chaos? Does it really matter? What they're really doing is like um vindicating the promise of the emperor and recognizing that the ecclesiarchy is corrupt <laughs> and actually um I don't know. This is this is Dan, wh- anyway. <laughs> when we when
0: we get the Horus Heresy box, you just build a word bearer's army. That's what you do. Uh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because reading all of this, they all they actually fills the book with these like incredible wood carvings right from the middle ages and stuff and, and like in the parts where she's talking about heresy there's like you know flagellants for this heresy and i'm like i know that from like the Archon flagellants I'm, like, <laughs> we'll stop talking about warhammer now but i was like this is incredibly fucking cool um so again we think of heresies and of you know various you know anti i suppose mainstream church acts as like um uh, as these kind of, I don't know, we, we kind of treat them now on the same level as we treat the church. as just like these insane people doing these insane things. Um, Back in my Dan Carlin days, where he uh, he has an episode uh, on hardcore history where he talks all about this one specific heresy, which is brought up in here, of, it's like in a town called Munster or something like that, by a guy named Jan van Leiden. And it was just this batshit, like a couple of weeks where everybody just went insane and started worshiping like some crazy shit. Anyways, moving on from that, um, she makes the point here that the heresies, and this blew my mind, that the heresies were kind of like, the liberation theology of the Middle Ages. And when I read that, I was just like, oh my God. Because she makes the point that she's like, not every commune had a large, like, or at least a certain percentage of its people who were given over to one heresy or another. And that's because these heresies weren't just like, like this isn't like the Arian heresy where it's like, er, God and Jesus, the same thing. It's like, wow, life actually sucks. Wouldn't it be better if everybody was equal? And You know, some of them had kookier ways of getting about that than others, and some of them had slightly more people whipping themselves in the street than others, but she says at its core, like, heresies were reactions against um, class society, basically, and you get these just insane numbers about, like, The crusade against, like, the Cathars, I believe it was in France, as just killing, like, when the church finally put it down, just killing, like, an insane amount of people. I'll look up here in a sec how many people it actually was, but it's just like the reaction. This is why she says that the ruling class reaction against these heresies was so brutal, is because it threatened the ideology and just the material conditions of the class society that was created or that was in the process of being created, right? But, um, yeah, I don't know, man. Brutal stuff. I, uh, I I'm gonna have to do more research into which uh, heresy I I would have been part of. Probably the Dornian heresy, if that. Was that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's worth pointing out if it isn't entirely obvious that what the sort of the what we're talking about here as heresy is kind of like a feature of the class struggle of feudalism, kind of thing. This is something proper to feudalism, and we're sort of backtracking from the sort of like transition to capitalism and how capitalism was functioning um
0: on, on that i'm just gonna say that the crusade against the cathars in france uh at wikipedia says at least 200 000 people died possibly a million.
1: <laughs> Oh my
0: god just like what I didn't yeah. learn about that in school yeah i didn't even know there were there's that a, many people around back then there's
1: a, there's a point in this where she describes one of these rebellions as being an a, a sort of an effort to implement the dictatorship of the proletariat like not under those terminology obviously but like there is a real revolutionary desire and zeal behind these rebellions some of them which could be portrayed as heretical and some of them not obviously i feel like this this branding of heresy in some ways is something that's being put on them by the church right i don't know whether how many people were going around saying yes i am a heretic um (laughs) but 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 sort of like and they seem to be incredibly varied as you say um but seem to follow this general theme of like obviously people are being horribly exploited by by the class structure of capitalist society but also integral to that sort of class structure is the the increasingly exploitative nature of the church and the church's relationship to people and the role that it played in peasant life and the things that it sought to control and then, so what you see as a feature of these rebellions is all the practices of these heresies is uh, almost like direct responses, sort of counter behavior to what the church is demanding of people, right? Whether it's like, sometimes it's refusing to have children. Sometimes it's just sort of like um, engaging in sort of like whatever sexual behaviors and practices they want kind of thing but always sort of like directed toward a deliberately rebellious revolutionary attitude there's a point in this book which I don't know whether it's intended but it really made me rethink the peasants revolt in England because I've always thought about the peasants revolt in England as being like the peasants were foolish and mistaken going off to kind of like plead to the king to say surely you cannot be in favor of this repression that's being meted out to us by um our feudal lords kind of thing why won't you stand up for us um but in this he describes the peasants in in quotation marks as going to have a word with the king which which in my mind cast in a totally different light of being like oh the peasants knew they knew what was up kind of thing they were (laughs) they were going to go and like Kick his ass. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know which of those two scenarios is true. Do does it matter? I don't. Know, yeah, let's just go with the one we want to believe. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um. Yeah, and she makes a point, like, to tie this into her central thesis, that like an outweighed number proportion of people who took part in these heresies were women, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like women obviously had this utopian, like, a reason to look for a utopia just as much as anybody, if not more so. Well, she's making the point more so, right? Um. yeah and it was it was it's very interesting i mean she kind of seems to be making a point almost where it's like had the feudal reaction quote-unquote not happened then maybe we would have gotten communism maybe we would have gotten like socialism or something like that she kind of like edges a little bit into that direction and for at the beginning i was like no the productive forces no you couldn't have done that the stupid peasants they couldn't have ever done anything uh, sack of potatoes what are you talking about But you also see what she's saying, right? Like if we don't want to be teleological about history, which is like one of the main criticisms that gets thrown against Marxism is, I don't know, maybe it could have happened. Like we talked about this when we talked about the absolute state, maybe as a way out of like, you know, all of this, all of this uh, conflict as opposed to capitalism, but like, Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. they could have just created like a utopia. Like, there's no physical reason that this couldn't have happened, where they couldn't have just kicked out all of the bishops and the popes and the dukes and all of these things. But the reason that it didn't, I suppose, is because a monopoly on violence very much lay firmly in the hands of you know the state and of the ruling classes. So you you definitely see what she's saying, and yeah, you know, why not? Let's believe it. Why not?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether there's any possibility that it could have stood up to the collective might of the the aristocracy and the church and the the early capitalist class—I don't know, but I mean it
0: literally <laughs> didn't anywhere.
1: So <laughs> it's jo- yeah, so yeah, proven by history, I guess. What what it did remind me of actually was um, James Connolly and Celtic communism. Is that what he oh, described? Yeah, right? sure. Celtic yeah, yeah, communism? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which which is a phrase that now has a new meaning to me now that I live in the kind of like Celtic fringe of England um, <laughs> or the Celtic fringe of the United Kingdom. Um, I don't know. Over oh, some Celtic communism, Why not? you're an honorary Celt yeah (laughs) i mean it's so much as that terminology means anything at all
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think that stuff just speaks to like nobody has ever liked class society period it's like yeah of course there was like revolutionary potential amongst the like serfs of the feudal era because Mm -hmm. it sucked to be a serf right Mm -hmm. like and whether or not as connolly says we can um kind of attach that, uh, unhappiness with, uh, their situations with a desire for socialism and, or communism is a completely different question. But, um, there were many reasons for people to want a classless society back then, just as there are many reasons for them to want it now. It's just this idea of like the proletariat can do it dude, because it's the universal class. Right. So Put however much stock you want to, I guess, in in those ideas. But we're very clearly seeing here that there was revolutionary potential amongst the serfs and amongst, you know, the Celtic lot uh, during the Irish Civil War and all of that. But um, what that revolution was heading towards and if it was possible, I guess, are two different questions. But, you know, I wouldn't have been the guy that would have been like, um, actually, you should stop revolting because <laughs> you'll see on page 73 of Marx's capital. Um,
1: Yeah, we have to wait for the development of the productive forces. Yeah,
0: Marx hasn't written capital yet. You can't do this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's funny when you were talking about our proclivity toward recognizing various things as the fall, I was thinking about (laughs) the sort of like millenarian aspects of um, Hmm. the sort of heretical bands that were in existence during feudalism. And yeah, one, I was thinking about, well, what, what form of heresy are we going to perpetuate? Um, <laughs> but also, but also, sort of like what what are the sort of like contemporary capitalist equivalents these two millenarian millenarian thinking now? Right? Are they conspiratorial in the way that like
0: oh, we now find them in the world? I guess
1: I don't know. I don't have anything to say about that. Maybe something to think about. Maybe I don't know. What's the relationship between decline and?
0: I mean, uh, we have plenty of doomsday cults. Yeah. Right. Like, turn on, you, you, uh, dad, if we ever go to America, we should just turn on an evangelical Christian, like, daytime channel. And I'm just going to make you watch it because it's just like, it's the most batshit thing you'll ever see. And it's so much worse than you actually think. And it yeah, is okay. this kind of millenarian, like, apocalyptic, like, come hang out with us because the world's going to literally end if you don't vote for Ron DeSantis. You know what I mean? It's just <laughs> like, so maybe that. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Maybe we should try like traumatizing people into adopting our politics. You know?
0: We did our best with the Fossil Capital episode. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> we are all doomed. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, dear. Vote communist. Vote communist. Join the Labour Party, folks. I um, <laughs> But there's only one other thing I kind of wanted to mention, and it kind of goes off of the ideas of her ideas on the state. And it was... She kind of tries to make the point where she's like, if we can really like you know draw out what was happening to working class women um and really make the point that it was just slavery right like we talk about wage slavery but like jesus christ you know she talks about imagining there's like no greater horror than watching your body do something that you don't want it to right when she talks about and you know how fucking pertinent is that to today when we talk about women and unwanted pregnancies and stuff like that but she makes the point where she was like if we can really do that then we can attempt to make a connection between um working class women and their experiences during this transitional phase and um, the experience of women in the colonies. And um, she's like, obviously, whoa, we don't want to like get too like caught up in saying it was the same thing because obviously it was so much worse in the quote unquote, like new world. Right. But um, she really makes an interesting point there. And she really says that when these kind of European working class women came into contact in the colonies with these like, either, uh, slaves of African descent or, um, you know, indigenous peoples. Um, she said that the state really had to like actively separate them from forming a common cause or just like hanging out and like being self-sufficient, right. Through foraging or through like just selling things on the market, stuff like that. So she basically says that's where we get this ideology of like race science and stupid shit like that, where it's like, oh, no, 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 like, white people, you you should look down on all of these different types of people because, you know what, you're actually better than them. And even though you have, like, this horrible life where you're getting stepped on by the ruling classes too, like, hey, wow, well, you know, at least you aren't these other people who are subhuman. Meanwhile, like, you know, they're just ripping the, the working-class women and the white women off. And, yeah, so it's, it was, that was that was a really interesting bit. Um, it was kind of a bit more where she gets into like maybe stuff where she's perhaps in her... Tr- Inter- what's the word uh inspired i suppose by like uh influenced by um wallerstein stuff like that well, Although i said that wallerstein doesn't come up once in this so unless i missed it so yeah it's interesting it's interesting stuff i think
1: it, there's what there's one one time when i saw his name mentioned can't oh, remember okay. in what context but yeah, <laughs> He's yeah. There. Yeah, yeah 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 she does it's it's really interesting to think of um i guess the u.s in particular but also caribbean society caribbean Colonies at the time and also South America in some respects. She describes them as sort of not starting out as slave economies, but developing into them. They were economies that included slavery, as well as we've talked about in the past when we read the Fauna book about indentured labor and this kind of thing, which comes up quite a lot in this book. Um, but as you say, it's a really concise explanation of at least one case in which um, racial and racist politics are used to. Subdue and lessen the threat of uh, a class-based politics. The Racialized politics are used to uh, prevent solidarity between members of the same class. Um, and she says then America becomes a slave economy rather than one that just uh, includes slavery, I guess.
0: Yeah. Just a, another thing, too, going off of that, she makes a real interesting point. She's like, actually, slavery also existed in Europe. She makes the point that after the Black Death and in the midst of that labor crisis, especially in Italy, they were just bringing they're just bringing slavery back. And yeah. records show that they're just like an absurd amount of slaves, whether it's from North Africa or from just after the continent of Africa in general or just, yeah, it's brutal. Or just like schmucks that got cut up. I don't know, like peasants yeah. who didn't have any land or something like that. It's yeah. particularly brutal.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting when she's talking about um, the initial stages of what we'll call what she calls like the feudal reaction, I guess, the things which led into the developing stages of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Their first reaction was not, let's develop capitalism. Their first reaction was, how do we institute um, serfdom again, and how do we bring about slavery again? And it was through various reasons whereby those were not viable scenarios that you start to then get these changes in class relations that see the advent of capitalism kind of thing.
0: Yeah. 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 I tell <laughs> you what, Dan, good stuff.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, I, I I will say when, when I read Marx's stuff on primitive accumulation, the last section of capital, I was, I was really impressed by like how, how much stuff he talks about in such a short amount of time and how he really talks about it was this process and primitive accumulation. That's not just money. It's all this different stuff. It's the colonies. It's this, it's that it's all of this stuff. It's the relations. Um, But so Silvio Federici is absolutely right. He doesn't mention at all the, the primitive accumulation of the degradation of women, right? He doesn't mention at all the primitive accumulation. If we think of primitive accumulation as this accumulation of new sets of relations, right? And the different ways and w- material ways in which you go about getting those relations, right? The different things that have to happen, that's the accumulation to get those relations, Um then absolutely the relationship of women's bodies to, and the reproduction of labor power just in general to um, the development of capitalism is something that is right up there with the colonies in terms of importance, right. Or right up there with the enclosures. I mean um, it was definitely an oversight by Marx and she also makes a really interesting point where she's like, when Marx talks about population and surplus and all of this stuff, he never even can, uh, he never even considers that this, you know, reproduction could be a conscious choice of the people doing that act, let alone the conscious choice of like the woman whose body is being used. Right. And she makes the point really where it's like, we see times in which women have been like, "Eh, actually reproduction isn't something I feel like doing right now. And just having that be my entire life. So um, I really found this enlightening and I really found it, I think a necessary addition to our ever growing stack of uh, origin of capitalism, uh, good reads good reads exactly yeah very good and one of these days maybe we'll get around to finishing it um and talking about some more witches but just for now this is i think the stuff i think i texted you and i was like i started reading it and i was like um dude this is actually about the origin of capitalism i had no idea (laughs) so yeah good stuff
1: yes yeah yeah. i've thoroughly enjoyed this really pleased that we read it yeah you're quite right all
0: right um well everybody we'll be back soon um we've started streaming regularly as well um so and we're actually not doing that on twitch anymore because it's twitch is kind of a pain in the ass and youtube's a lot easier so go subscribe to our youtube channel if you want that and um our fucking discord link never works for longer than like a day or two so if you want to join our discord then uh message one of us either on instagram or on twitter or i don't know leave a comment on youtube or something and we'll get you or send us an email you can always send us an email, which would be very nice. What's the um,
1: email address, Jack?
0: <laughs> I think it's auxiliary statements at Gmail. Gmail. Something like yeah. that. I don't know. Make, that would make sense if that's what it was. Yeah, it is that. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to go console Nicola Sturgeon um, and put my name in the hat for... Uh, Prime Minister? No. What was it? Chancellor? What's her name? <laughs> uh, Leader of the SNP is what I'm going to put yeah, my name and, in that. hat I'll just uh, say
1: that. <laughs> Yeah, what is she? Well, Scottish. Scottish. <laughs> Scottish, yeah.
0: Oh, I'm trying to look for it now. I don't know. Leader of the SNP, I think that's fine. Um, apologies to our Scottish friends. Um, all right, well, first we'll be minister. back.
1: She's first minister of Scotland, sorry. First oh, she was. Minister. No longer.
0: I think continues to be until I find someone else, which that's going to be a news cycle that is just going to fucking suck. Who's it going to okay. be? This asshole or this asshole? <laughs> what are you going to do? Um oh also uh diane feinstein diane feinstein announced that she's uh not gonna be seeking re-election which maybe we should have said at the beginning as part of our like hilarious news cycle.
1: (laughs) (laughs) 35 years too late
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah 90 years too late um all right well yeah thanks everybody and thank you dan i've enjoyed this very much
1: yeah thank you jack thanks everybody for listening it's been an absolute pleasure as ever
0: Bye. -bye.